Jen, I'll be honest, I haven't always been the most enthusiastic of nonfiction readers, but I've since changed my tune after discovering a few key authors, including Mary Roach. I've been hooked on her books ever since I read Packing for Mars. She has this ability to tease out the quirky, unconventional aspects of science and writes with so much humor and wit that complex topics are made accessible to the average person. When I saw that she was coming out with a new book, I knew we had to ask her to be a guest on the first 50 pages. Mary Roach is the New York Times bestselling author of several books, including Stiff, Spook, Bonk, Gulp, Grunt, and Packing for Mars. Her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law, just came out in September. We are so excited and completely awestruck to have Mary Roach as our guest today. Welcome to the first 50 pages, Mary. Thank you so much, you guys. Don't be awestruck. Stop (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, before we dive into talking about your latest book, Fuzz, you know, as an avid fan, I have to know, like, what got you hooked on writing about science? Well, I kind of came to it indirectly. I was a general magazine writer, feature writer for many years. Uh, um, In the beginning, I was writing for just uh, the Sunday magazine of the San Francisco newspaper. But then there was this magazine that started up, it was called Hippocrates, and it dealt with medicine and health, but in a really fun way, like they would go, well, we want a diet story. And I'd say, how about we do like, how do sumo wrestlers gain weight? And then you do the opposite. Like I would like (laughs) do whatever I could to get a trip somewhere crazy and far flung and they would go for it. So I did a lot of, uh, a lot of writing about uh, health and medicine. Uh, and it was very fun. And uh, th- that went on. I was a contributing editor there for at least a decade. And then um, Discover Magazine, somebody just contacted me, an editor from Discover, which is, of course, a science magazine for the general public. And the editor <clears throat> contacted me with a, an assignment. And I said, sure. And it was very fun. I forget exactly what the topic was. But um, I kept writing for them. And the the science stories I was doing and the health and human body related stories were always the most fascinating for me. I mean, I love to travel, but I found that like the human body is kind of like a foreign planet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, uh, just a very weird place to explore. So it kind of just held my attention. What would you say is like the toughest part about science writing for you? I mean, obviously you have a ton of experience now, but... Was there like a shift that you had to make in your journalism style or kind of just a shift in your writing? Well, I think that the the challenge for me is that I don't have a background in biology or physiology uh, or any science for that matter. So when I come up against a fairly complicated subject, you know, say genetics or neuroscience, um, I have to kind of scramble to get up to speed and I definitely run the risk of sounding like an idiot when I interview the scientists or the doctors (laughs) or the surgeons. I've gotten, I I think the shift is that I've gotten used to being the idiot. I I have no shame. I will ask anything, no matter how basic. And I will also uh, say to somebody, I'm sorry, I I didn't understand a word of what you just said. We need to, (laughs) can we back up? Can you drop this down? Just pretend you're talking to a eighth grader and and just try to talk to me that way because if I don't understand what someone's saying I can't make the reader understand so um, I have to be a little proactive in in trying to get folks to 
speak on a uh, more basic level so that <laughs> I can understand it. <laughs> what do you think people often get wrong about your books or about science writing in general? Um, I, I want people to know just from glancing at the cover that this is a fun read, even though it has the word science, may have the word science in the subtitle. So I think people tend to run away from science. They think it's not going to be an interesting read. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like one of you mentioned, not typically reading nonfiction. And I'm, I'm someone who reads a lot more fiction than nonfiction. And I, I also often find nonfiction, while it's fascinating, sometimes it doesn't, it's not something I want to just curl up with and enjoy it's it's more like educational and fascinating but um i so so i'm i i'm trying to uh pull people in to a topic they may have some resistance to so, so i think that people like gulp which is a book that goes from the nose to the rear end uh <laughs> follows the tube adventures on the alimentary canal that that title was designed i want people to go like i wanted to feel like a travel log like you're sailing down the alimentary canal like it's <laughs> it's a fun and interesting journey there's nothing in there about nutrition it's barely even about digestion um it's a it's a really surprising weird read and i and i try to convey that with the title and the cover uh, but i think sometimes people don't know they see the topic and they think Ugh. <laughs> I don't want to read about space. I don't want to read about. I'm like, no, no, no. Don't go away. <laughs> Stop. Come back. Well, I promise you it'll be enjoyable. I will tell you as a reader, I thought that the book was so fun to read. And I found myself just wanting to talk about it constantly. Like people, I was like, this book I'm reading, let me tell you this story <laughs> from this book I'm reading, you know, and there would be something on the news that would catch my attention in a different way because of what I read about in the book. And I think people were kind of like, yeah, yeah, we know you're reading this book. I'm like, you should read it. Then we can talk about these, these stories. They're super fun. Like, you know, it, so yeah, I would well, agree. You, it was yeah. really a fun read. It really was. Well, thank you. And, and it's people like you who I have to thank for my success because I really think there's, there isn't any way for a cover and a title to, to get across what is in that book because it's pretty, pretty um, unexpected, I think, what goes into my books. And so it's only when somebody starts to read it and talks about it to their friends that they really get an idea uh, of, of or, you know, or they listen to a podcast like this, um, that they really get a sense of it. So that's why it's so important. So thank you. Yeah. I mean, I will admit I loved reading it, too. Yeah. It was just like, oh, this is another like great Mary Roach book that like I'm learning something <laughs> else about science. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, exactly. It's like I don't even mention the liver. You know, like, ah, I don't have anything. There's nothing. There's nothing fun about the liver. Let's just skip the liver. You know, and meanwhile, I've got an entire I've got like three chapters on flatus. <laughs> There's an entire chapter on. Uh, oh, remember the one about can any can the eaten ever escape like you know starting with jonah and the whale and then like there's all these rumors about animal like certain worms escaping from the stomach of <laughs> reptiles and so i went down this crazy rabbit hole of uh answering that question but but just which is so much fun for me but you know people um might they obviously they would have no idea from the cover i can't convey that with a cover <laughs> that that is inside this book so I guess I could. I guess could have just a little note that says 
with three, count them, three chapters about Flatus. Yeah, kind of have like a little asterisk and then just like yeah, start exactly. listing all the stuff. Like, <laughs> So for our listeners who haven't yet had a chance, like Jen and I, to get their hands on a copy of Fuzz, would you mind sharing a bit on what it's about? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, the subtitle is When Nature Breaks the Law. And uh, it's mostly animals, although there's some trees in there uh, and beans. So it's, and it, it, obviously animals don't break the law. The laws are written for humans, but all of the things that are illegal uh, from manslaughter, murder, breaking and entering, trespassing, vandalism, jaywalking, animals do all of that. And it drives us crazy sometimes. And so it was, for me, it was kind of a fun way to present the topic of human wildlife conflict because the the term human wildlife conflict sounds really boring. (laughs) So I wanted to presented in kind of a relatable crime way. Uh, so, it, you know, we start with the felony crimes, um, murder and manslaughter. And um, I look at the forensics of wildlife attack scenes when an animal kills a person and the forensic, like, because that, that is treated like a crime scene. And there's, you know, from everything from the yellow tape to the gather- gathering evidence, DNA, trying to link the victim to the perpetrator. Um, and then talking about breaking and entering, which is a bear chapter set in Colorado, where bears routinely break into houses, sometimes when people are there having dinner. Um, and then moving on to uh, like jaywalking has to do with deer in the headlights and why do they do that and how can you help them to get out of the road. And uh, so various things relating to, to jaywalking ungulates. Uh, I have gulls that were uh, doing some crazy acts of vandalism at the Vatican. <laughs> I always wanted to go to the Vatican. So, it was, so I did. Um, I, I thought maybe I could also, while I was there, get an audience with the Pope and ask him about the ethics of pest control. But I did not, <laughs> I did not succeed at getting an audience with the Pope. But I did get an interview with somebody at the Pontifical Academy for Life, which was pretty hilarious. Um, I can't so, believe they didn't want to want to add to the Pope's calendar. <laughs> I know. I would have. I would have thought it would have been a refreshing change from yeah. the usual topics that the Pope has to confront. You know, it's a little tricky to get access there, the old Vatican. <laughs> I do love how your book does take you to different places, right? So you talked about being in um, Colorado and and bear um, attacks, and you know you're in. India and California and in Canada, which I found um, especially interesting, the WART training, Mm W-H-A-R-T, the Wildlife Human Attack Response Training. Yes. Um, So it does take you to all of these different places, and you really do immerse yourself in research with the subject. But I think one of the things that really struck me in the book is the interactions that you had with the people that you're working with. You know, there are people who took you, you know, and and kind of showed you, um, you know, the real life scenarios, you know, you're walking through the mountains of California, in India, yeah, having close interactions with macaques. And (laughs) (laughs) So, and you know, like you said, you're you're not afraid to kind of poke fun at yourself too. And I think that's part of what makes it so accessible because as readers, we are not scientists, but we really do get to be involved in 
the story and the process. Like you take us on that, on that journey. I just have to share a couple of my favorite quotes. They're oh, not your quotes. They're quotes from other people that you were working yeah. with in the book. So one of them is, it's hard to be tolerant when there is a bear in your kitchen. <laughs> I was like, the understatement of the universe. Right. Yes. Um, I know. I love that line. Yeah. Yes. And then the other one that really struck me is um, squirrels in the park are adorable. Squirrels digging in your planters are deplorable. And yes. That, yeah. and when, when we think about like human wildlife conflict, before I started reading the book, I'm thinking like on this bigger scale, you know, and you do have some of those large scale stories. Mm-hmm. And I think from my, my, as a reader, my own experience, I'm like, I have a personal issue in my life in my past with squirrels. <laughs> so that really. <laughs> you and everyone else. I know, right? <laughs> and, but I think that's one of the things about reading the book that we bring our own stories and experiences and emotions right like humans have such emotions and I think you you hit on those things in your storytelling um as as you're talking with people as you're um, out in the field researching which which is really a unique and fun aspect of your book I thought because it made me think about myself and you know not to throw my husband under the bus but he currently has (laughs) an issue with some rabbits in our yard but I'm I'm gonna work on him to practice um, exclusion, maybe exclusion. In, yeah, in our, yeah. Go in to our... that uh, humane society of the United States. They've got a really good. It's called What to Do About, and they probably have rabbits in there, and they have good suggestions for ways to resolve these conflicts. You often exclude, you know, keeping keeping the animals out. But but to your to your point, yeah, I I, I am discovering all of this along with the reader basically I mean I did it earlier but the reader is sort of joining me traveling back in time and joining me as I kind of explore these things and I'm I'm no expert I'm learning it's all new to me so um, I'm 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 glad to hear what you said because that's kind of what I hope to do is is present these things in a relatable way and make people feel at ease because I, I, all, we all have these conflicts and we all are annoyed by critters that are getting into our attics or eating our fruit off our trees or whatever they're doing. Um, and by the, by the same token, we, we love them because they're adorable. So you, we, there's this, you know, and, and the problems that, you know, the big problems with, you know, bears and, uh, bears and people you know when an animal is big enough to harm someone you know bears are kind of like just big raccoons they're just trying to get some food and for the most part they don't want anything to do with you but if you've got food that's accessible they're going to come into your garage or your house or your cabin or your garbage shed and um then you know and 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 you know everybody loves a bear but you know not when, not when it tears their kitchen it. apart <laughs> and or uh it, it tries to get into your tent when you're camping because you've got some food in the tent and that's really scary so um you know we we all make these mistakes with animals and we all are trying to figure out you know what what to do that's that's fair to them and that makes our lives bearable so it, it's not an easy matter with any of these animals you know it's, you, you can't sit them down and talk to them and you can't find them and you can't you can't reason with them yeah. so 
you, the best you can do is try to prevent these things in the first place. But anyway, yeah, thank you for saying that. And I think it kind of um, brings up a question that you pose in your introduction. You know, what is the proper course when nature breaks laws intended for people? You know, I kind of drew a blank on like really having any thoughts on how to answer that question. I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's very easy to judge from the outside. You know, people sometimes they feel very strongly either on one side or the other, uh, either for or against the animal in terms of what should be done. But it's off, you know, until you're in that situation, you know, like I was talking about, I was talking, there's a bear researcher, Stuart Breck, and we were talking about, you know, there's some people who just feel that no bear under any circumstances should be destroyed, you know, even if it harms a person. And then there are other people who just see a bear walk through their backyard and get the shotgun. So, um, and he, you know, he was talking about ranchers and, and the, the emotions that they have, you know, he said, even though it's a, okay, say they're, they have sheep that they're grazing, you know, even though it's a business for them, it's a financial undertaking, there, there's, a, there are emotions invested in that. And, you know, if you've got, an animal during calving season that just gave birth and you see that um, a wolf or a cougar grabbed or even a, a hawk grabbed that newborn. I mean, there's an emotion there. You know, the sheep are your world and your life. And so for someone to judge them without, I mean, just without an understanding of what that, what their life and their culture is, is tough. That's why I thought the um, these efforts to bring you know, at coexistence, those those carnivore coexistence organizations that try to bring together ranchers and animal activists to 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 sit down and talk, and but more importantly, to listen and to try to understand each other's point of view and each other's background and 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 why these things, why they feel the way they do, and to try that's it's really the only way to approach any kind of compromise or solution. Because uh, because these matters are emotional when it comes to animals. You know, the animals might not have any emotions for us, the wild animals, but we do for them. So uh, anytime you bring emotion into the situation, it becomes a little harder to to find your, see your way to a clear solution. And also, you know, dealing with government agencies, you're dealing with the bureaucracies that yep. that entails Um you say that the National Wildlife Research Center has had many incarnations and names over the past 150 years, but always one goal, effective, cost-efficient wildlife damage control. And then in another point, um, that all U.S. government agencies agree on the fate of a wild animal that kills a human. And you know that's how we approach yeah. things in the United States, but in other countries, um, Things are, you know, looked at very differently. And I think you explore that in a really interesting way when you do go yeah. to India. Yeah. The, um, it here, both here and in Canada, that's the, the policy. It's it's treated as a matter of public safety. Um, an animal that harms a person or kills a person is destroyed. There's an effort to make sure that they have captured the the actual individual not the wrong one but nonetheless that is the policy in india yeah india is interesting because the uh some of the animals that cause the most trouble uh elephants and macaques monkeys uh those are both um represented as deities in hinduism you have hanuman 
the monkey god and Ganesh, the elephant god. And so people are brought up with this lovely relationship to animals and nature because the deities tend to be plants and animals uh, often or their spouse is one or they're riding on one. Uh, so so um, there's a lot of affection and reverence accorded to the, the wild animals. Um, uh, if you go to a Hanuman temple in New Delhi or anywhere in the north of India, um, pe- you know, people go in and they make offerings to the um, idols inside, but they also come out and, and make an offering, as it were, to the macaques. There's always macaques around the Hanuman temple because they know that people are handing out fruits and candies and little drink boxes. And so people are doing the very thing that causes the problems. They're attracting these animals in large numbers into urban areas because they feed them. But they are also very annoyed and they want the city to make the problem go away. Um, and and uh, the city will never be able to, to do anything like culling, you know, like we do here with deer, where there's sometimes if the herds get too big, the, the number, the population is too high, they may hire a sharpshooter and cull the herd. That would never happen with the monkeys in India. It's even um, even difficult to get people to accept any kind of birth control efforts. Um, the monkeys are uh, captured and taken to a sanctuary in the so- southern part of New Delhi. It's very hard for the veterinary services department to hire a monkey catcher because the job has a stigma. You know, your your job is to, you know, to trap and harass and manhandle a monkey, and that's just that's not acceptable. So it is this very vexing problem for the for the uh, bureaucracy in New Delhi, as I figured out when I went there. Were there um, specific stories or um, travels related to um, animal human conflict that um, were most interesting to you in doing your research for this book or stories that had the most impact, visits that had the most impact on your writing? Well, not necessarily on the writing, but I, I, I did find that the time I spent in New Zealand was very thought provoking in that, um, New Zealand is a, it's an island nation with a set of fauna, birds and animals that are, uh, evolved without land predators. These birds, uh, they're flightless because they didn't need to fly away. They didn't have any predators. And then, uh, humans arrived from Europe and wanted to bring along some of their own animals to make it look more like home. They brought rabbits, the rabbits multiplied and became a problem. Um, And so what the the solution was, somebody started importing stoats and ferrets from Europe to kill the rabbits. Well, the rabbits, there were some rabbits killed, but the stoats, ferrets kind of looked around and kind of thought, well, those eggs and those little chicks running around those birds that can't fly. That's, that's pretty tasty. So that the indigenous uh, animals began to be wiped out. So the um, government has undertaken some, this program predator free 2050, and it is an effort to uh, eliminate, exterminate from the island, ferrets, rats, and possums, um, which are the three that uh, three species that are causing the most deaths in the um, local uh, populations of, of birds and reptiles. And that's an interesting and, and difficult undertaking in that, I mean, when I first arrived, um, I saw, I went out to this beach in Otago where they have these yellow-eyed penguins, which are just beautiful. They have this kind of like 
Flash Gordon kind of like yellow streak coming back from their eyes and their legs are pink and they're it's just adorable. And, I, and, and seeing them, I thought, yeah, I can understand you want to preserve this bio, this incredible biodiversity that exists nowhere else in the world. And these, you know, there's a few thousand of these penguins left because of the stoats and ferrets and also feral cats, which is another whole matter. But um, so I could understand that. But then the next day I was out at a facility where there's an individual who's testing his, who, what he does is try to come up with more humane traps and more humane poisons for these animals that they're trying to wipe out. And that's just, you know, just seeing those possums and, and New Zealand possums, I have to say they're very cute compared to ours. <laughs> um, just way cuter. And you see these guys and like, oh, okay, this, this guy's testing a more humane poison. You're like, oh God, you just, you really feel for these creatures. I mean, it's not their fault. The possums were brought in to establish a fur trade and, um, you know, they're being exterminated. And I, while I certainly understand the desire of the population of New Zealand to preserve their their wildlife, their unique wildlife, it's just, you know, that's just a lot of death <laughs> to be, you know, and also it's, it's a poison that they're dropping uh, into the forest and there's, you know, there's other animals that are killed, it gets into the environment. But any, anyway, that was, you know, just to try to th think your way through, like, what is the best thing to do here? And then from there, I moved to, to gene drives, which is a kind of a very futuristic form of birth control where the female would only give birth to males. And so that's going to, that's going to be the end point of that population. And it's, it, and that's, you know, you don't have to kill anybody, but that's kind of a scary thing to think about too. You know, that's the, the end of the, you know, the last quarter of the book has to do with those larger questions. So while there's a lot of fun in the book and a lot of, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of interesting characters and, and situations the issues are are kind of big and hard to imagine what's the right thing to do and I think one of the things that is very powerful about your storytelling in the book is you present the stories um, in a way that it does I think get people to want to talk about it um, to want to understand, to maybe learn more. Like it certainly opened my eyes to things that I really hadn't thought about or wasn't aware of. Yeah. You um, have this another really great line in the book that says, you know, when you tell people some of these things, you make the alternative a little less comfortable for them. Um, you yeah. keep it from being a thing they give no thought to. And I think I am probably forever changed, you know, having read your book, because I certainly will give thought to these things in the future. Yeah, I, I think when we call animals pests, it gives us permission to think of them not as fellow creatures with whom we share this earth. I think we gives us permission to just call someone to deal with them, to make them go away <clears throat> without really thinking about, well, what? will the exterminator or the wildlife control operator, what are they going to do once they take that animal away? If indeed they just take, if they indeed they trap it and take it away, sometimes they may just, you know, kill it on site. Um, well, like why, you know, we, we, because we as a culture have just decided certain animals are pests and it's okay to just make them go away. And, and I think that, 
that is something I would hope people give a little thought to, you know, because there are alternatives. You can try to prevent the problem in the first place. And there's also humane wildlife control operators. And there's information on the Humane Society of the United States has a website with a page that talks about how to select a wildlife control operator, a humane one, like, and what questions to ask. Because sometimes they may just call, they may use the word humane, but all that means is, well, we kill them with CO2 and that's a quick painless death. Okay. (laughs) And for, yes, for readers at the very back of your book, you have a, a chapter called the Fuzzy Trespasser, resources for homeowners. And there are some really great resources there. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's just um, we we have been conditioned to you know to consider, in particular rodents. And I understand people have issues with rodents, but not all rodents are the same, and not all situations are the same, and not all situations are ones in which you need to call an exterminator. I mean, we have roof rats in our neighborhoods because they like to run around in trees, uh, and they don't. They're cute. They're not sewer rats. They're not massing in any numbers. They're not going <laughs> to, it's not an infestation. It's an occasional little guy who looks exactly like a squirrel, but he has a naked tail. And so, so what? I, you know, I, I've got squirrels in the yard and I've got the occasional roof rat and that's fine. Um, I don't want that creature squirrel or rat in my attic or in the walls because I don't want them chewing on the wires and causing a fire, which I looked into and that does happen because I was like, does that even happen? Is that just a thing people say that I called an arson guy? And he's like, yeah, that does happen. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. Like glue traps. What? Uh, let's not use those anymore, people. <laughs> let's not nice. There's better ways. There's quicker ways. Just a snap trap is much quicker, particularly some of the newer ones where make sure that the animal that the head goes in at a certain angle so that it's placed for a near instantaneous death rather than you know being stuck to a piece of glue for a week or so so yeah just what, a little thought is nice you do go back um more historically so you know yeah. you're, you're showing us things from and mm-hmm. i feel like in a lot of ways we spend lots of money and energy studying and creating ways to um, get rid of these conflicts, but they often don't work. You know, even where there is more of a solution, we don't like the solution. Like maybe right. it's ugly or disturbing to, like right. with the effigies or oh, yeah, the effigies. Yes, <laughs> for those who don't know, effigy is like a a dead bird hanging upside down, right? That scares other birds away. That- yeah, particularly effective with. Vultures. Yeah. Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it uh, and it's it's used to clear, you know, uh, like a communications tower with where vultures may like to roost, and then it it um, for anybody who has to climb that tower and work on it, it's um, disgusting because yeah. <laughs> it's full of vulture crap. Also, vultures tend to vomit as a defense, so they you know anybody yeah. trying to climb up when there's vultures around is getting. A double, a double whammy of vulture crap and vulture vomit. But anyway, uh, just a single vulture hanging upside down, kind of spinning around, uh, they won't roost there. And it's, it's, it's effective for quite some time, which most things that scare birds are not effective for very long. The birds kind of call your bluff and go, yeah, okay, that we don't have to worry about that. 
that's harmless. That's nothing. But for some reason, the effigy, and you can get them that are only the wings are our vulture, the body styrofoam, and you can actually purchase them. Um, but the, but yes, they do, they do creep people out. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. So some of those more effective things we we don't want to necessarily use. Yeah. Has writing this book, you know, changed how you feel about adventuring outside, or you know, maybe made you change your habits or way of thinking after doing such a deep dive into the world of animal plant and human conflict? Um, I, I think it made me more relaxed in terms of backpacking in California, because I know how rare it is for either a bear or a mountain lion to harm or kill a person. I mean, mountain lion deaths, uh, fatalities in this, I mean, a decade will go by in California where nobody is killed and bears in the whole country kill between zero and three people a year. So it, it's, it's so uncommon. And now that I understand the circumstances and I understand, you know, what, what you should do and not do when you, if you encounter one of these creatures, I just, I just feel a lot uh, safer. I just, you know, knowledge is power in a way, just uh, um, knowing, first of all, that it's extremely unlikely that you're going to be harmed. And second of all, um, that, there's ways to determine, is this a defensive situation? Have you startled the animal and it's feeling threatened by you versus is this animal stalking you? So your behavior, you know, you, you would have, there's different things that you would uh, try to do in, in those scenarios. So, you know, uh, having learned all that makes me feel a lot more confident being out in the wilderness, I think. So in my notes for this book, <laughs> I had, I was like, here's what I learned from this book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take a moment to share. Um, the worst thing you can do in any situation where a predator seems bent on attack is to turn and run. That running yeah. away triggers the predator-prey response. You yeah, see, cougars especially, yes. Um, Don't do that. And as any, <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so my, another one of my bullet points. As any criminologist can tell you, prevention is better than punishment. The safest thing for both species really is to keep them apart and that garbage is a killer. Like, yeah, we don't live, in, you know, where we're at in Iowa, we don't have bears. You know, we don't really have to think about right. our garbage. And so that was really an interesting um, part of the book for me to learn about that. We do yeah, have deer, you, yeah. though, right? So. Yeah, the de yeah, deer. I didn't. Well, I covered deer as jaywalkers, but yeah, deer. um uh yeah their numbers they they sometimes do reach a point where they uh a municipality will make will be kind of pressured into doing something about it yeah that's so, tough and there's and it's i mean while there are there's birth control uh there's like sort of a hormonal shutdown called gonacon it sort of sends them in females into menopause uh and males into male menopause um but the pro the, the issue is that you have to uh, you have to do a booster. So you, you'd have to, and with a free ranging population, that's tough to kind of, you can't just give them an appointment card and say, come back <laughs> in six months and we'll give you your second shot. So, you know, it'd be great. There, there, there is this one shot deal that they're working on, which would be great uh, if that was something, but then you've also got to get it into the animal and uh, it's, you, you can't really shoot from far away. You know, a tranquilizer dart is a big, heavy thing. 
I mean, a, not a tranquilizer dart, but like an injection dart, similar to a tranquilizer dart. So um, yeah, deer are, deer are an issue. And, and, you know, in terms of the number of human lives lost, deer are the, by far outnumber, uh, I mean, people, people being killed by not so much hitting a deer, but swerving to avoid a deer, going off the road, hitting a tree. Um, those interactions with deer kill far more people than anything <clears throat> that a bear or cougar does in this country. Yes, that is another one of my bullet points. Do not break excessively or swirl, swerve wildly for a small creature, no matter how cute. Yes, <laughs> and yes, do not speed do in moose country. I don't know if I'll ever find myself in moose country, but I will never allow anyone I'm driving with to speed in moose country. No, don't do that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, those medical, those papers about what happens when you hit a moose because they're so tall and the, you hit the legs, the whole big body and head and antlers just cartwheels over through the hits the windshield and even the roof and so all these people end up with broken necks paralyzed because of uh the way that you know the the biodynamics i guess you'd say call it of the the, a deer i mean a a moose or an elk that is hit in the legs or a camel people a lot of uh, paraplegics um who uh, hit camels yeah in saudi obviously not here (laughs) um yeah, not here. Well, another, another one of my bullet points. Feeding wild animals is the quickest path to conflict. So yes. don't feed the yeah. wild animals. Yeah, and that's so hard because people people love them and they want to feed them. My next door neighbor, she puts birdseed out on the ground. And she, so now for the first time, I've lived here 15 years. And since she started doing that, now we see um, roof rats and pigeons. So I'm like, okay, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for bringing them into the neighborhood. You know, I don't know that this is necessarily something that I learned from reading your book, but, you know, the stories illustrated sort of hammer home the point that the behavior of humans is harder to manage than the behavior of wild animate, animals. Yeah, a they're, lot of what these human wildlife conflict people do, I mean, in India, they're they're um, working more with the people than the animals. I mean, if you you got a herd of elephants, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you could put up fencing, but the elephants figure out very quickly how to get over an electric fence. They figure out that the wood doesn't conduct electricity. So they, you know, with their foot, they'll just press it down. The other elephants will cross over. Uh, So your best thing is to work, you know, work with people and educate them and give them whatever tools you can, because you're not going to (laughs) convince, you're not going to convince an elephant. (laughs) Or a squirrel, for that matter. And your neighbor's probably going to still put out bird seed, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's not. Yeah, that all that is a, is not to say that it's easy to change human behavior. It's not. Um, we've talked to her about it, and she nods and goes, "Oh yeah, I understand." Yeah. <laughs> and keeps like, putting yeah, the bird seed out. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, since Fuzz just came out in September, do you get to take a little break, or are you already working on a different project? Oh, well, you know, it, it was supposed to come out in April because of yeah. COVID, we delayed it. So I've had kind of a, a slow year. I did some projects, like I did a um, a young reader's version of Packing for Mars, which was fun oh, uh, yeah. and something I could do without traveling. And I updated Stiff. There's a new, with an epilogue, a new edition of Stiff that has just come out. So, I've, so I, and but none of that was really full-time work. So I've been really taking it pretty easy and I'm super eager to get back into a new project. So if and when you, you know, have time to read for pleasure, you know, what kind of story do you seek out? Well, I'm currently reading Susan Orlean's book on animals. Um, 
<clears throat> for two reasons. One, we're doing an event together also because I'm, she's one of my favorite uh, authors of, you know, between fiction and nonfiction. She's definitely one of my favorite nonfiction authors, but um, so I'm reading her. It's a collection of her writings on animals. Not all wild. A lot of them are domesticated, but she's just a lovely writer. Uh, I just read Dave Eggers' The Every, which is a, I love Dave Eggers' writing. Um, this one's a little different. It's sort of a satire. It's kind of a, a, a <clears throat> look at um, a world in which Google and Amazon merge and what happens. And it's just beautifully imagined and, and it's just some of the scenarios that he creates. And so it's one of those books that's sort of a dystopian future but that you kind of when you really think about it we have one foot in it already so it's a it's it's funny but it's also chilling and it's it's feels like a really good time to be reading that particular book because of so much stuff going on you know the those um facebook glasses that you know you can take pictures everywhere you go and i mean there's just a lot of stuff happening in the world of tech and ai that um uh, this book kind of makes you imagine what might the end point of that be. So sure. really an interesting read. So those are two. Um, and then um, the next book I'm going to read is a collection of pieces by John Mualam, who's a nonfiction writer. He wrote a book about wildlife called Wild Ones. Anyway, he's a really good writer, nonfiction writer. So those are the nonfiction and fiction ones that I'm I'm reading <clears throat> currently. Uh, I love the work of Patrick DeWitt. I read everything by him uh, last year. Wow. He wrote The Sisters Brothers, which is a mm -hmm. Western, but I mean, he's just a beautiful writer, but also hilarious. His dialogue is really yeah. funny. Uh, so um, I've got a new Jess Walter novel that I'm looking forward to reading. I love his books as well. We oh, do love it to when read. the... Um... When the authors that we talk with are also readers, it's such a fun. I always I steer people to my Goodreads list because there's too many to mention. But yeah. all and I only do five star my five star. Well, there's some four star, but I, you know if I if I don't if I didn't really like it, I don't put it on Goodreads. So well, we will um, definitely a few have to hundred check that out. <laughs> <laughs> a few hundred books on there that I've really enjoyed. I would say probably two thirds of them are fiction. Well, but uh, a fair number of nonfiction as well. Here's it's time for my confession. So Fuzz is the first book that I read that you have written, Mary, but it was not uh -huh. going to be the last book. I enjoyed it so <laughs> oh, much. Good. I am definitely going to go back and read some of your other books. I've already got them sort of in my queue. <laughs> oh, excellent. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. They're fun. They're it, fun. It, it, I, I loved Fuzz. I thought it was a fantastic read and I well, highly so recommend it. Um, it has been really a joy to talk with you today, Mary. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the first 50 pages. Thank you. Mary. Oh, you bet. I, I just had a great time talking to you guys and um, so appreciate your uh, helping me share the word about the book and uh, the topic. It's been really fun. <laughs> <laughs>